You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Some of you may have seen, or if you haven't uh, read it, maybe you saw on social media. I don't know. I'm not on social media anymore. Best decision of my life. Um, But maybe you saw going viral, uh, New Yorker. um, That's not to judge you, by the way. I'm just saying, for me, it was the best decision of my life after marriage. And... Uh, deciding for Christ. Um, But uh, there was a New Yorker article that probably went viral on social media last week or so about Chick-fil-A. And, you know, if it weren't in the New Yorker, if this were just some sort of blog or something by some angry person, nobody would care. But the fact that it was in the New Yorker, uh, this short sort of opinion piece about Chick-fil-A's, it's called Chick-fil-A's creepy, keyword, infiltration of New York City, and the insinuation here is that New York City is above the uh, evangelical Christianity that Chick-fil-A sort of represents. If you didn't know that as part of Chick-fil-A as a um, corporation's identity, is Christianity is in the background. That's why they're not open on Sunday, um, even though some places where you go to brunch after church in the morning might be open, Chick-fil-A isn't. Um, just to sort of on the first page here, it says. Uh, uh, Chick-fil-A's corporate purpose begins with the words to glorify God and that proselytism thrums below the surface of its new Fulton Street restaurant. I mean, and that's actually a category mistake. The word to glorify God in the phrase isn't really proselytism. It just shows you where this person is coming from. And here's what they had to say. I'm just going to read the sort of a little bit of the highlights from it so you can hear what's going on here and and what this represents. You know, it's not really about this piece, but what this piece represents for our day and age. This is a week and a half ago. New York has taken to Chick-fil-A. One of the Manhattan locations estimates that it sells a sandwich every six seconds, and the company has announced plans to open as many as a dozen more storefronts in the city. And yet the brand's arrival here feels like an infiltration, in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism. Its headquarters in Atlanta are adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing a disciple's feet. Its stores close on Sundays. And then it goes on to uh, criticize its CEO, Dan Cathy, et cetera, et cetera. And it talks about the cows and how ridiculous the cows and their Um, marketing campaign are, um, and then here's the end. Defenders of Chick-fil-A point out that the company donates thousands of pounds of food to New York York Community Pantry, and that its expansion creates jobs. The more fatalistic will add that hypocrisy is baked or fried into every consumer experience. That unbridled corporate power makes it impossible to bring your wallet in line with your morals. Still, there's something especially distasteful about Chick-fil-A, which has sought to portray itself as better than other fast food, cleaner, gentler, and more ethical, with its poultry slightly healthier than the mystery meat of burgers. 
Its politics, its decor, and its commercial evangelical messaging are inflected with this suburban piety. A representative uh, from um, the advertising group they used to create the cow marketing campaign once told Adweek, people root for the low status character and the cows are low status. They're the underdog. That may have been true in 1995 when Chick-fil-A was a lowly mall brand struggling to find its footing against burger juggernauts. Today, the cows, quote, guerrilla insurgency is more of a carpet bombing. Tough words. New Yorkers are under no obligation to repeat what they say. What they say is eat more chicken, right? Um, uh, enough, uh, we, uh, enough, we can tell them in all caps spelled N-O, M-O-R, no more. Um, well, look, I mean, I never eat at Chick-fil-A. Don't hear this as a sort of, you know, sort of thing where I'm trying to, this isn't an apology for Chick-fil-A. As I said, uh, this represents where we are in our culture that um, I notice, you know, as someone from Northern California, from the San Francisco Bay Area, that is often difficult to see in the South, though maybe you see it in certain places, is that increasingly the United States is not, is no longer, maybe never was, a Christian society. That as some people say, we live in post-Christendom, that um, the uh, prevailing winds of our culture are no longer, in terms of the mainstream, Christian. And as someone perceptively told me earlier this week when I was talking about something else from my upbringing, about the climate of Northern California when I was growing up as being very um, antagonistic to Christianity, and that person said that the scary thing about that is places like New York City and California tend to be where we're going to be in like 10 years. Right? And so, I mean, this will be an AL.com for what it's worth in like 10 years, that sort of sentiment. And this is the, the reason why I wanted uh, to look at First Peter, uh, the epistle of First Peter for a season. Um, as Peter says at the beginning of his letter, to those who are the elect exiles in the dispersion, He's speaking to uh, pagan Christian converts in the diaspora of the Christians. That's people who are from several different churches spread in pagan territory. You know, they're resident aliens. They've converted um, from their Greco-Roman paganism, but still living and identifying now as Christians in their homeland, and they're feeling the uh, pressure from this. And this letter of 1 Peter is well known uh, for addressing persecution, uh, for the faith and teaching on suffering with Jesus Christ's passion as a, a model for us. And it also has a sort of back and forth character about it, of uh, sort of poetic expressions of, about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then almost in the same uh, breath, specific instructions that call us to obedience. It's not necessarily one section on the grace and one section on the calls to obedience. It's it's woven throughout like a sort of symphony. And uh, it's, it is this intersection of these things that I'm most interested in for us. Amidst persecution or suffering or trial or whatever you want to call it, how do we hold out uh, hope in our salvation in Jesus Christ? And also, by persevering, uh, how do we continue to behave like Christians? I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling the most stressed, I find it, the, I behave my worst. 
You know, like when you go in the kitchen, turn on the lights, and the cockroaches all scatter. The rats come out of the cellar. You know, when, when I'm at my most pressed, that's when I behave my worst. So how, when feeling under the pressure of this sort of suffering and trial, do we continue to live in light of the hope that we have? You know, how, how is that possible? I just read a quote the other day by a, guy, a fellow named David Orr, who's apparently an environmentalist. I don't know a thing about him, so he could be, uh, who knows. And so don't take this as a sort of blessing of him, because I don't know anything about him. But the quote was great. Uh, For what I think our passage in particular today has to say to us, David Orr, O-R-R, said, Hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And that could be a sort of lame brain uh, kind of statement in other contexts, but in our case, it's true. Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. And so last week, at the beginning of 1 Peter, uh, we learned that we are a people chosen specifically by God, like Israel before us. You know, not because of anything about us, but chosen like Israel before us, specifically by God. And because of the blood of Christ, we have grace and peace with God. And as such, we're like newborn infants, born again. Or the phrase you might have heard is regenerated, kind of like Frankenstein's monster, you know, previously dead and regenerated to come uh, back to life. And all of this gives us a, a living hope. Not only that we're saved, but that we have an inheritance is the word, um, almost like a vault that's locked up for us in the vault of heaven, you know, where, where thieves do not break in and steal. We have an inheritance guaranteed for us there. And as such, we're like children who've been adopted by the one who ransomed us from uh, our kidnappers, from, our, from those who had us in bondage, and he has made us heirs of his household. And also, we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is all in chapter 1. This is all in that poetic outpouring from Peter in in the beginning of chapter 1. We're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, meaning that God is at work in, in us and on us and through us, and we're being made holy by the one who is holy. That's an incredible thought, that God is at work in us and on us and and through us, working through us. Um, uh, These are all incredible thoughts, everything that I've said. And and this was all finally, here's here's the final thing, and this was all known a long time ago. Prophets testified to all this about us. When you read the Old Testament prophets talking about you know, this future salvation, they're talking about us. Isn't that incredible? And that's, so that's not new news. But this has been God's plan all along. Our redemption has been God's plan of old. When you were in your mother's womb and uh, before recorded history, this has been God's plan. And now this week, I want to focus on just one verse. Just one verse, verse 13. Uh, If you want to look at it in your bulletin, go ahead, but I'll read it to you. And because verse 13 is a helpful bridge from all that I've said in the first uh, 12 or so verses in chapter 1 to the rest of the passage and to a lot of the rest of the letter. 
uh, between the sort of glorious message of grace last week and the call to Christian obedience or holiness uh, in the rest of the passage. So verse 13 starts like this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So there are two things right here that we can say. That therefore refers, as I said, to everything that I've just highlighted in the first 12 verses. And then preparing your minds for action in the Greek literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. If you don't know what girding up loins is, this isn't probably the silliest thing I've ever done in a sermon before, but I've got handouts for you. So you can see the visuals of it. So pass these down the aisles, okay? To, to gird up one's loin is the, the men, not just the women, wore sort of like maxi dress tunics, okay, back in the day. Uh, and so if they were going to do hard work or go into battle, you couldn't very well do that hard work with your, your legs constricted. So they would tie up the tunic around through their legs and around their waist. So they're, they're basically rolling up their sleeves. They're rolling up their sleeves, as it were, to get to work. And that's what Peter says right here. This is from a website called The Art of Manliness. Men, make sure you get a copy of this, okay? This is from Job in particular. Remember, God often says when he's about to talk to Job, he says, gird up your loins. <laughs> get ready for what I have to say. Um, but it, that's elsewhere in the Old Testament too. Uh, to, so Peter's saying here, uh, where am I? I've lost my notes, sorry. Uh, preparing your minds for action, that means to gird up the loins of your mind, or your heart, you could even say. And this uh, sort of means, as I said, like rolling up your sleeves. Uh, buckle your seatbelts. You know, as I told my kids, click it or ticket, because if I get a ticket, you're paying for it. Get ready, we're going. Basically, the Christian life of hope is hard work. It's difficult, so prepare yourselves, and don't be surprised when the difficulty comes. And that's the reason the rest of the verse says, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and uh, set your hope fully, completely, on uh, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's on that foundation again of the message of grace that we have through Jesus. It's by uh, girding up the loins of our minds and setting our sights hopefully on Jesus Christ and living in great anticipation of our inheritance to come that any of this can possibly happen for the long haul. Here, uh, what verses 14 through 17 say, as obedient children, do not be uh, conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, when you were like Frankenstein's monster before the regeneration, uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. None of this is possible 
without that foundation, that therefore, of that glorious message in the first half of the chapter, on, on which we, with which we gird up the loins of, the, of our minds and, and our hearts. And Peter will uh, go on to say that this uh, hopeful living will even bring some who are the sort of Chick-fil-A hating or Christian bashing uh, folks to glorify God eventually because they will, uh, they will witness us having hope in a hopeless world. In other words, we are called to hopeful resistance, acts of hopeful resistance in a hopeless world. Did you ever see the... Um, the movie uh, with Roberto Benigni, Life is Beautiful. It won all kinds of Academy Awards. It's about um, a man who falls in love with a woman and then they uh, have a, a child and this is during, they're in Italy and this is during World War II and he's Jewish and so uh, the Nazis come in and uh, take them, him and his wife and his small five-year-old son or so off to a concentration camp. And the great thing, here's the thing about the movie, is the father plays a game with the son so that he never realizes what's going on. He acts throughout the whole time that they're in the leading up to the concentration camp, while in the concentration camp, and up to the time when, they're, when they actually kill him. He pretends with his five-year-old son that they're in a game. For example, when they first get to the barracks there in the concentration camp, uh, he, he, this Nazi comes in and he says, does anybody speak German? And uh, he doesn't, but he goes forward to tr fake translate uh, from German to Italian to all the new Italian guys in the camp because his son is there. And when the German gives the, uh, you know, sort of dictatorial kind of um, commands, Roberto Benigni's character is playing like this is a farce, a game so just for the boy. And he says, we're playing a game and anybody who wins the game wins a tank at the end of it, and uh, basically mistranslates everything just for the son to have hope. And uh, at the very end, the boy is hiding uh, in the, this uh, sort of closet in a wall, and he can see his father, who is being held at gunpoint, march down, and the father sees his son through the slit in the closet, and the son's looking out, still thinking it's a game, and he, blink he winks at him, and fake goose steps off to his death, an act of hopeful resistance is an illustration for what the Christian life might be like. And what about you? What's any of this got to do with you and us? You know, maybe you're not uh, feeling persecuted for your Christian faith, but you do know that uh, you're suffering and you have trials of some sort, will gird up the loins of your heart and mind with the hope uh, and grace of Jesus Christ. And maybe uh, you're struggling with some relationship that seems hopeless, and the harder you try to make things better, the worse it seems to get. Gird up the loins of your heart and mind with the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ. And maybe your employment or financial situation is a total mess. You just want to say, take this job and shove it. Gird up the loins of your heart and your mind with the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ. Or maybe truly, maybe honestly, this whole being a Christian thing is so socially compromising for you in some way. Identifying as a Christian is going to make things tough for you somehow. 
will gird up the loins of your heart and mind with the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, whatever it is that's ailing you, gird up the loins of your heart and mind with the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ. And here, here is my final thought, okay? This is a sort of a, an aside. Back to the, um, the Chick-fil-A thing. You know, that article might not sound like persecution to you. I mean, it seems relatively benign for whatever it's worth. Um, but I want to turn that kind of stuff back on us. When that stuff uh, ends up in the media, like that Chick-fil-A article in The New Yorker, I want to turn it back on us because we play a role in causing those very reactions. Uh, when we uh, strongly confuse any political agenda with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if someone disagrees with that particular political agenda and we've conflated it with the, the saving grace message of Jesus Christ, the biblical message, to, uh, to the, someone, it gives them a permission to wholesale disregard Christ and the church. And it's a confusion. To a certain extent, I can't blame the author for this piece. You know, he's reacting to what's out there in the air. The real issue behind this article is that this man is uh, bitter about Christianity. And he's bitter about Christianity because, I'm assuming, the Christian community somehow has, has burned him for some, in some way. And so what if instead of a sort of shrill reaction that he's uh, baiting us for, by the way, what if instead of that he saw a hopeful people rolling up their sleeves in hope. Uh, and that would include not responding like we're sort of entitled brats, you know, in the sort of internet troll generation, not being like the trolls. Uh, this, is a, this hope is a, is, a, is a rare commodity. And things could get worse. And things are worse in other parts of the world for Christians. Whatever the, the case is uh, for you and for us, let us gird up the loins of our minds and hearts and the hope that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.